Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is John D. Girolamo, and he just published a book in June 2022. The title of the book is It's Not About the Sex, True Stories of Human Trafficking from a Law Enforcement Officer, a Survivor, a Brothel Madam, and an Advocate. And it's broken down into four different parts. It's a really well-written book. I found it really fascinating. I read the first two parts in their entirety. And I was pretty shocked. I didn't know some of the details. It's the, the, really the violence that takes place in this environment of human trafficking. So I learned a lot about reading uh, those parts of the book. And at the end of the book, there's also tips and advice for people to look, things to look out for. Uh, John D. Girolamo, this is not his first book. He's also written, It's Not About the Badge. That was last year. And then another book back in 94, 12 Suicide and Other Short Stories. And he is a critically acclaimed author, speaker, and anti-human trafficking advocate. He believes that trafficking is one of the most underreported issues of our day that cuts across all economic, social, racial, and political boundaries. And he focuses on stories from rural and suburban America, seeking to shine a light on and create awareness of the evils of human trafficking. And his website, you can check out, and I will put it in the show notes, along with a link to the book, is www.itisnotabout.com. So it's all one word, itisnotabout.com. But again, we're going to talk about his book he just published. Title again is It's Not About the Sex, True Stories of Human Trafficking from a Law Enforcement Officer, a Survivor, a Brothel Madam, and an Advocate. So John D. Girolamo, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name, your background, can you kind of talk about your career. I know you've had uh, different types of work, different types of jobs, and then kind of what led you to put together this book. It's not about the sex. Sure. So you, you, you mentioned I had a collection of short stories back in the nineties, and then there's this gap till last year. And, and that's because uh, when I was young, I was really interested in writing, thought I was going to be the next John Grisham. And when that didn't work out, I figured I better use the accounting degree that I earned and get a real job. And so I did that for 30 plus years. And when I was finished with that career, I went into a semi-retirement mode and decided to uh, get it, get back into writing. And so, so that's, uh, that's how I got there. And so your earlier book before this one is, was it's not about the badge. Can you talk about that? Cause I think you had kind of a similar, similar approach in that book as well as this one. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a similar style. So what, what I did with that book is I wanted to show the human side of policing. And I would go to small town, middle America police, um, including my daughter, who, who, is, who is a school resource officer. And I would ask them, tell me about a day on the job that you would never forget. And I really got all kinds of very interesting and diverse answers, even though they were small town uh, police officers. These are not the guys who are, you know, saving the uh, terrorist bombing in the subways of New York or something like that. These are regular guys out on patrol. And one, one, of, the, um, one of the things that I would do is I would interview them asking about these uh, experiences that were extraordinary to them that might seem ordinary to us if you just read the police report 
And then at the end of the interview, I would typically ask um, just sort of off the wall questions. One of them was, what would you do if you won the lottery? And I was expecting an answer such as I'd buy a boat, go on the lake and do fishing all day. And one of the officers answered that he would quit his job and hunt down human traffickers. And when he said that, I was, I was not expecting that answer at all. And I, I said to myself at that time, you know, that's another book. That's another subject that I need to explore. And when I thought about it more, I realized that I knew a little, little bit about human trafficking, only a surface level, and figured I was probably like most people. They know a little bit, not a lot. And when I was finished with the police book, I decided to dive into this project and do a similar style of writing, which is trying to tell stories um, and give people you know, a, a really good uh, plot line. So they're going to want to turn the page and find out what happens next. And after a year and a half of research or so, you know, here I am with this book and uh, learned quite a lot. There's a lot of misperceptions out there and, um, and, and just, you know, found that it, it, to me, it's the, it's the thing that is the most evil thing that somebody can do to another person and even though that is a heavy subject, I wanted to put something together that wasn't salacious, wasn't graphic, wasn't sensationalized, but really got to know the, the people in this book. And I profiled four different people. And can you talk about the research and what, how you ran into these different people with different perspectives on the human trafficking issue? Sure. So I, I reached out to some nonprofits that dealt with uh, victims or survivors of, of human trafficking and went to meet with them and wanted to see about who would be interested in telling their stories. There were many people that were willing to help out, but really weren't, didn't want to talk about uh, specifics in their life. Uh, but it was a series of meeting people who then introduced me to a law enforcement officer or in, introduced me to a survivor. And many times they would ask several people who just, you know, for whatever reason, didn't want to have their story told. And if it was a survivor, they may still be very traumatized by that. Uh, so it was it was really through networking. I didn't know any of these people before I started. And so I wasn't sure how I was going to you know, get there, but, uh, through a, through contacts, I was able to do that. And th those are all those individuals are in the state of Colorado, right? Yes. It's all Colorado connection. And, you know, most people have heard about human trafficking issues on the border in big cities. And that's absolutely true. And when I initially started my research, what people really didn't know about was that it's happening in small town America, rural America, nice communities, all 50 states. So I wanted to focus on it, it uh, being in neighborhoods that people, you know, just feel like it's their own. It's their own neighborhood. And if, if it could happen in a Colorado small town or nice suburban area, it can happen anywhere. 
So I focused on that uh, and they all have a Colorado connection. Brandon, can you kind of talk about the backgrounds of some of the victims and kind of, it seems like there was a common theme of like vulnerability and predatory things. And also it almost felt like what happens to a person when they get involved in the cult, like they don't see it coming. Like it's then that the screws of the trafficking are twisted immediately. Right. Can you kind of talk about the grooming process? Yeah, definitely. One of the surprises that came out of my research is it's a very small percentage of people that are kidnapped. It's three to 5%. And, and I think that surprises a lot of people. And what, um, what actually occurs is over half the time, there's some kind of connection through someone that you know. It could be somebody in your family. It could be a friend. It could be someone you've met online. But it's not something that is just, you know, they're, you're, you're snatched off, off a street corner. And so you get this connection with other people. And that's really part of the grooming process. So, for example, one of the stories is with uh, Janelle Goodrich, who's an advocate uh, in the chapter. And she goes through and, and, and she's a case manager. She helps people navigate the system, mostly underage uh, teens, as they're you know, getting out of their situation and, and trying to become a survivor. And so I focused on one of the stories, which was, a girl still living at home, going to high school, but was playing an online game during the summer. And over time, she met this friend who was posing as somebody who was close to her age. And it all started very innocent as far as what food do you like? What music do you like, etc. And then they eventually meet in person and of course, this person isn't at all like what his profile is, but he's able to get her hooked on drugs. And once that happens, then they're much easier to manipulate. So it's several months later, by the time she's actually being trafficked from when that first initial contact happens. And that's called a Romeo pimp, where it's somebody who is looking for that romantic relationship it's you know slow going versus what's called a, a gorilla pimp, which is where it's very violent and coerced right away, very quickly. Sometimes they can be the same person, but many times they're looking for somebody online and they're just sending out a bunch of messages and they're seeing who's going to react, who seems to be isolated, who maybe, as you, as you mentioned, has some kind of unmet need, whether that's emotional, psychological, financial, etc. Right. So it's like they, they, they usually get cajoled by some kind of lie or something like that. And I mean, then it gets bad. And I think that one story, the first stories involving the younger girls, like their parents didn't know the totality of what was going on. They were involved in their own lives too. So it seems like they they weren't on top. They got on top of it once they realized what was happening, but they weren't really keying into uh, the exact the exact details of what was happening, right? Yeah, and you know, there, there's clearly risk groups. If you're a runaway, if you're homeless, if you're in the foster system, 
not in a good situation, that's going to be more risk and more vulnerability. And the other, the other kind of third of that uh, population is this still living at home, still going to high school, seemingly doesn't have that high risk factor, but yet they're getting exploited and, and they're getting trapped. And that group is typically with a Romeo style pimp where they're, they're meeting them at a Starbucks and they're just chatting them up. And the next thing you know, they're, they're meeting uh, more and more often. And then, you know, they're, they're giving them gifts and, and a second cell phone, things like that, where it, they're just working it over time. And those are the things that, as you say, kind of sneak up on people because that victim is not uh, expecting it. They're thinking this person really likes me. Now, now sometimes they'll use things like um, there's, you know, I, I know this up and coming rapper. He wants people for his video or a modeling uh, gig, that kind of thing. And that does happen. And a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of young people can fall for that because they're looking for fame. They're looking for attention. And that's one of the ways that, 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 that people, um, teens are, are going to try to be popular is, you know, Hey, I can get on someone's video. I, I can get on social media. I, I can be on YouTube, et cetera. And so that's very alluring for them from a psychological perspective. And then, then it's, then at some point it just becomes too late. And then, then they go through a, a different range of emotions, whether that's, you know, feeling shame or feeling stress or feeling depressed, things like that. And that just, that just makes it more uh, easy for this predator to manipulate somebody. And then, and then they've, they've gotten in too deep. There's going to be pictures, there's going to be videos, and then they just threaten and say, well, I'm going to tell all your friends or I'm going to post this on social media. And then the person is stuck. And if you're 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, they're just not savvy in the world and they just may really feel trapped. Right. And they're intentionally trapped and all that stuff. And that second story about the mother and daughter was, inc I mean, Sue was in harrowing. Like some of these, you talk about the, the Romeo groomer or Romeo pimp, but the gorilla ones are, I mean, it's not even funny, super brutal. And often they're trafficking groups of people too. Can you talk about uh, how ugly it can get? Yes. Uh, typically a, a pimp like that is going to traffic several people simultaneously. Um, there may be a frequent gang affiliation, which just means that it's, it's even worse because um, there, there could be multiple people in charge. They may trade people. They may move people from one area to another. And typically they're going to be just very violent right away. Um, they're going to you know, really try to break that person psychologically as well as physically. And they can do that in, in uh, several different ways. So for example, psychologically, they're going to try to convince them that nobody else cares. The authorities are not going to help them. They're going to isolate that person from family, friends, etc. They're going to truly try to break them and they're going to try to threaten them. During one of the interviews I, I conducted, 
uh, it was described how a, a pimp got a key to a person's house and put it on his chain and would twirl it around and tell the person, I have the key to your house. If you don't do what I say, I'm going to harm your little sister or I'm going to kill your parents. And I have the key to your house. And so they're feeling psychologically broken that way. And the other part is physical. They may move them to a different city. Uh, they're going to take away all their money, take away their phone, take away their, um, you know, any kind of internet access. And they're going to just really control them and threaten them with more violence. These guys do not value life and they do not value people. And, and they're going to um, swap somebody out if they think they're any amount of trouble. And they're not going to have any qualms with hurting someone physically or uh, or worse. Right. So it can lead to murder. I mean, it really can get out. And that's kind of the threat is we can get rid of you. But can you talk about the financial incentive of these pimps? It's this incredible amount of money and how the kind of business end of it works. Can you talk about that? Sure. So globally, um, human trafficking is the second largest crime after drugs. And in, in this country, from a financial perspective, uh, there's more money being exchanged in human trafficking than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. So it's a multi-billion dollar business, and it happens everywhere. So the officer that, that I uh, interviewed in the Denver area, he said that they may work 100 cases on the task force a year, but he estimated that there's 1,000 people being trafficked in just the Denver metro area. And Denver's not the biggest city in this country. So... So you know it's 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 just humongous, and it's, it's you know it's hard to get data, real hard facts because um, you know people are you know obviously not talking about a lot of that stuff, and um, and th if they're done, their pimp may just toss them out, and they may be homeless on the streets in a completely si uh, different city than they're used to, and. Frequently, they're going to try to get them hooked on some kind of drugs or alcohol, so they're easier to manipulate. But then, if they're homeless and on drugs, you know, all kinds of other bad things can happen, even though they may be out of the situation of being trafficked. Right, they're just really very socially disadvantaged to to get into that situation, but also just to cope with it. Like some people could call powerful uncle or somebody a lawyer you almost never see somebody with a lifeline for these people and also i think it was fascinating you had that fact where their life expectancy is very small like they people who go through that typically don't live long productive lives right yeah yeah it's it's extremely traumatic uh because they can be uh raped over 10 times per day and their pimp is looking at them as a commodity. And unlike drugs where you have to grow or create in a lab, you're just selling that person's body over and over again, hour after hour. And that's just, you know, that's how they view it. And so um, there's a, the, the suicide rate, the drug usage rate is just 
much, much higher for anybody who's gone through this kind of traumatic experience. So the life expectancy, uh, according to the officer that I talked to, is about seven years. That's not how long they're being trafficked. That's just their life because the success rate of people getting in, getting in to you know, the system or, or getting in with a nonprofit that's going to help them out is, is really a low percentage. It, you know, people will estimate that it's really the success rate is less than 10%. It's low. And there's a lot of people who get re-trafficked and you, then you throw in drugs and runaways and homeless, and then they just start that cycle uh, again. And it just almost invariably leads to bad outcomes. Right. It's incredible. And one of the facts that I found interesting is that these runaways, you said one third are brought into trafficking within 48 hours of hitting the street. So these guys are looking for those people. Like it's like they don't have a chance just to be out there. Like they're getting snatched up and commodified, like you said. Yeah, they are absolutely hunting anyone who's a runaway or, or homeless. And the research will show you that the thing that is most traded for any kind of sex is housing and food. And if, if you're a, a teen runaway, typically not with a lot of money, it just falls right into that trap rather quickly. And yeah, that first 48 hours, um, these guys can, can see somebody who's vulnerable from a mile away and they're going to just, you know, uh, target them and and that kind of person, especially with the gorilla pimp, there's no need for Romeo. There's no, they know no one's watching them, so they're totally vulnerable, and and they just prey on them, uh, un unfortunately, and and have a success rate. Right, and then you talked about one girl, Jessica. She she just went through the whole process and came out the other side. Escort, porn star brothel madam can you talk about the arc of her journey through sex trafficking yeah you know i when i heard jessica's story of she was raped as an adult then went to um, colorado springs to do escort services then decided to go do pornography in los angeles came back to run a brothel in denver and then kind of really hit rock bottom and then that's part of the redemption story. <clears throat> and I wouldn't have her in my book unless there was that redemption story. And the thing that struck me when I heard about her, before I met her, I said to myself, how does somebody make those kinds of decisions? I mean, who is sitting there as in, working in the escort industry and says, you know what? I think I'm going to move to L.A. to do porn. That sounds like a really good idea. And I couldn't wrap my head around that. So when I, when I talked to her, one of the first things I really said, I said to her is, I want to get inside your head and really explain to the reader your thought process. And so what I did differently with that chapter is I wrote it from a first person point of view. So it, it feels like you and Jessica are sitting down at the kitchen table and she's telling you the story. She's talking to you the reader, and we go through all of these decision processes and how she does that. And then 
And then, you know, it ends with this redemption story. She comes back to God and God loves a comeback story. And so I really like the way that this story ends because she becomes a much stronger person and, and now is a vocal advocate against pornography, um, against all these uh, lifestyles that feed into that. And so her story, it, it gives you a little bit of an insight of what goes on in this in the world of pornography and, and, and brothel. And one of the things that she made the connection, and it's in the story, is the pornography feeds human trafficking because it's feeding that kind of fantasy with young, underage, teen girls. And when you feed that fantasy, some people are going to want to fulfill that in real life, not just watching something on a screen. And it really warps that sense of relationships of what it should be. And it's, and it's definitely, you know, that's clearly not a healthy relationship if you view that from the lens of an escort girl or pornography, something like that. It, it's, taking, it's taking sex out of the context of love and marriage, and it's just putting it into this sort of base level physicality. And to me, that's kind of the real war on women and girls is, is when you do that and you're kind of ruining that for whoever the viewer is, whether that's a male or a female. Right. And there is kind of an underbelly of sex trafficking or human trafficking in the pornography industry. I remember out here, I followed the story of girls do porn. And that was that was a horror story. These girls were brought in like, I just want to take some modeling pictures and they, they wouldn't let them leave. It was almost like some of the stories from your book. They wouldn't let them leave until they shot a, a scene and those guys went to jail and one guy's still on the run, but it's an incredible aspect of some of that, of what's going on above board, right? Like we don't know what go, is going on. That's totally. Yeah. Too. Well, for example, uh, Pornhub is one of the world's largest sites for pornography, and they were recently sued, claiming that Pornhub had underage uh, people on the site and had um, sex trafficking victims coerced and exploited on the site. After that lawsuit was filed, half of their videos came down off the site. And of course, that's not perfect evidence. But it, it, it certainly gives you the sense that whoever you know, thought that and, and pursued that lawsuit, they were on the money. They knew that that's where it was headed. And, and it just goes to show you. And, and, and of course, you know, there's, there's billions of views on, on these uh, pornography sites on an annual basis. And so, you know, and, and you've heard things about like revenge porn or things like mm -hmm. that. That's that's typically mm -hmm. with a you know, relationship gone bad, and, and you post your your ex lover's um, you know video of, of of you on there. But this is even worse than that because these are these are kids, these are teens, and um, and and these are victims of of sex trafficking that are on these sites, and people are are going to there, and they're. You're, they're, they're clicking on them. And it's, again, it's kind of feeding that fantasy. And so it all is this cultural factor that makes human trafficking um, 
you know, even worse. And unfortunately, right. technology makes it worse because a you've got this this internet based uh, pornography, but also financially you can you can move money. You know, there's Venmo, there's Zelle, there's Apple Pay, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's it's not you know the strange guy on the on the corner in a bad part of town wearing nothing but a trench coat you know, handing people money. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, the modern world doesn't work like that anymore. And, and these predators, they love technology and they love chaos and they love the fact that they can set up profiles almost within minutes. And it, you know, it just makes it easier for them to evade the law because they're just, you know, taking down and setting up new profiles all the time right so they can do kind of a quick hustle out of cheap hotels run like i mean you said in the book like some girl like sees eight johns or ten johns in a night and they're all what middle-aged white men and with money paying cash and uh and i think that the if you're the pornography if you're watching pornography you don't know that women are trafficked but if you're watching it that's a further incentive for the traffickers to make more right so it's kind of facilitating the continued industrial. i mean this is industrial scales like i didn't know that so much was going down in colorado but like people are mentioning chinese trafficking i've known of a, the cartels move women from place to place intentionally so that nobody can find them their families can't find them they threaten to kill their families and in mexico they move around and even into the states so there's all kinds of stuff going on that even above board they may be like oh she's a quote stripper unquote but that's not all they're doing and same with the the spas and stuff like that sorry yeah yeah it it, it definitely can happen in um in some of the massage parlors things like that but but just to kind of touch on what 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 you mentioned is uh the ceo of the national center on sexual exploitation recently was quoted saying that Child sex abuse, sex trafficking, and pornography has have merged online into one industry, and 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 that's kind of what we're seeing because you know how many times do you see a headline of somebody who it was abusing a child and they took pictures of it, and 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 so there's evidence which is great for a criminal trial, but not so great when they may have traded that for other child pornography uh, clubs on the dark net, you know, things like that. And so you're seeing kind of all three of these getting closer and closer into one, you know, one industry, if you will. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of international things. I mean, I've heard horror stories about the dark web. There's a guy in the Philippines doing unspeakable things. So, this is just kind of one side of it. And in your stories, too, some of this happens when these are really children, five years old, six years old, right? I mean, some of this isn't just teenagers or younger women or things like that, right? Yeah. Un un unfortunately, in, in the younger uh, kids, you're seeing that in more of a family situation. And um, one of the one of the chapters... Um, goes through Angela and 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 she was exploited uh, starting starting at around age five and 
this had a traumatic effect for her entire life. She's in her 50s now. Um, but the story isn't, you know, her chapter isn't just to talk about uh, familial trafficking, but it's that healing process, the recovery process, and that perseverance in the face of adversity. So when I look at Angela's chapter, I look at her going through this journey, you know, getting memories back, you know, and, and going through all those th things and really trying to survive that. And, you know, towards the end of the story, she's really telling people that, hey, I am feisty. I am more than just a victim. I don't want you to look at me as a victim. When I walk into the room, I don't want people to point and say, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a victim or that's a, you know, survivor of sex trafficking. And so there's this, you know, really um, deep passion of, of hers to go through that healing process. And amazingly, she talks about wanting to heal other people. Yeah, there, there, you know, when I interviewed her, she said something to the effect of, you know, you may have a, your problems might be a stub toe compared to being trafficked, but it's still your stub toe that you need to go and heal and you need to go and, and take care of that and don't just let it fester and turn it into depression or whatever it might be. And the fact that somebody like Angela, who's been through everything she's been through and has the means and wherewithal to talk to me, a total stranger, who's going to write up the details of her life, how she got to that place where she felt strong enough to do that, to me, is, is kind of inspiring. It is. And there's some faith. Like, these women have faith. Like, one was definitely Christian. It seems like their belief got them through. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, everybody talks about a, a little bit about their relationship with God. Um, you know, certainly Jessica. There's a there's a, a lot of that, as she talks about how that really, that was the only way that she could get through her situation. And and she said something to the effect of, you know, I spent a decade working for the other guy, getting to the bottom of the sin barrel, but once she hit that rock bottom it was only then that she could finally uh move on to the next stage and 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 you the story focuses on her building that relationship with god you know, wanting to be um a friend with jesus and and that part's really inspiring as well to to see her go through that and how it gave her strength and and in her way you know, she said something to the effect that she spent a lot of time trying to abandon God, and it was never clear whether she should have been relieved or petrified. And, and that's kind of part of the story, is when she was petrified, that's when she knew she really had to come back to God. And the flip side of that coin is when she was you know, doing, you know, doing all these things that she knew was wrong, that's when she really, you know, truly abandoned her relationship with God. Right. And uh, John, we're at 30, the 35 minute mark. Do you have time for a few questions? Yeah, sure do. Sure. Uh, Big J asks, do you have any knowledge of the keepers 
John Hopkins priest scandal. Are you familiar with that at all? Um, not really, no. Okay. And then Barbara asks, she says, is the author saying that with COVID and the internet, these problems grew exponentially? What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, COVID really, so what did it do with teens? It took them out of school, put them at home in front of a computer, and they had, did not have that social interaction. So where did they go to find that social interaction? Typically, they went online. And so you saw a lot more of this grooming and predators going online to try to, to, try to find new victims. So absolutely, the whole you know, pandemic uh, made things worse from that perspective as well. And, you know, the teen mind, they really, uh, they really have a, put a lot of value on the lot on likes and who's following you and things like that. And, and if you ask the typical teen, they're going to have thousands of followers, but they looked at, at that as a goal, not as a problem, because how many of those do they actually know? And the answer is probably a small percent. Have they actually met in person that they can really say is their friend? And, you know, if the goal is to get more friends and more likes and, and more followers, then, you know, some percentage of that is just going to be these bad guys looking, looking for new victims. Right. So they're online. So COVID what did grow, uh, did make the problem grow. And then Oswald asks, does John think that there's more trafficking among institutions such as religions or cults or non-organized strictly by the numbers? Do you think institutions or non-organized are trafficking more? You know, I, I can't really say, and I think it's really hard to get hard data on that type of thing. So um, I, I would just have to speculate. But the people that, that I talked to, were you know, had their own individual experiences, uh, and and those are the stories that that I put together. But I'm sure that stuff is going on there. It, but I think it's really hard to to put a finger on on what percent that might be. Right, and uh, really great book. I like the narrative, the way the narrative style that you presented the information because you could really follow it, and it made it a human story instead of like some objective facts or stats that somebody from law enforcement put together or something, but you just see how these people can be sucked into this or drawn into this and not get out. And uh, really, really did. I think you did a great job in that, but John, we are at the 40 minute mark. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap it up? No, I, I just think a couple of, you know, real quick tips for, for parents is, and, and it might be their kid, but it also might be someone on your kid's soccer team. You know, if you're seeing people who have a second cell phone, who have unexplained gifts, those are the time to start asking questions. And every parent should know and control the passwords on their kid's phone, what apps are downloaded, what chat rooms they're in, because every program has it. And they should really be checking often because that's where these predators get in on these kind of private messenger slash chat rooms on all these apps. Right. And you do have those tips at the very back of the book too. practical things to look out for as parent or friend 
or how their personality right. changes. So it's there. The bullet points are there. But uh, where's the best place for people to get this book? It's not about sex. Yeah, so people can get a signed copy from me from my website, which is www.itisnotabout.com. Uh, it's also selling on Amazon. So those are the two two ways to do it. And you recommend if people have any follow-up questions or anything, they can contact you through the website and kind of see your other books as well, correct? Exactly. Yep. My, my email is on there. I also have a uh, professional author Facebook account. If you do a search under my name, uh, you, you'll find me as well. And there's links from the website. Right. And your last name is spelled D-I-G-I-R-O-L-A-M-O, D-Girolamo, Girolamo. And it's John D-Girolamo. Again, title of the book is It's Not About the Sex, True Stories of Human Trafficking from a Law Enforcement Officer, a Survivor, a Brothel Madam, and an Advocate, just published June 2022. So, John, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a great discussion. Awesome. I agree. Thanks. Stay there. Stay there.